welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. Glad you're with us. Um, I, I want to try and conclude the series that we have been doing. It's been broken up a bit by personal circumstances in terms of uh, its continuity, but um, this is part six, and I want to wind it up if we, if we can. Um, what we've been doing in this series has been looking at the Bible as the story of God's mission to restore all that has been broken and all that has been cursed as a result of the disobedience of man. So we've been looking at the Bible as a meta-narrative, a large story, not just a collection of lots of little stories that kind of you read and treat them a bit like Aesop's fable, you know, you read a a portion and kind of get a message out of it, but trying to see the Bible as an overall story. And that story outlines what, what we call the Missio Dei, the mission of God, as he seeks to redeem everything that's been broken. Um, Isaac Watts in that famous hymn, Joy to the World, talked about the gospel going out as far as the curse is found. And that's God's intention. It's not just to redeem people, it is to restore everything that has been broken. God's unstoppable goal is nothing less than the restoration of his good creation from the impact of man's sin. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 verse 20 in the message translation puts it beautifully when it says, all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. So what we've been doing in this series is tracing through the story of God's rescue mission. And we saw that God launched this rescue mission in the most unusual way, choosing an elderly, childless couple. Caught up in the worship of Ur of the Chaldees in Babylon, he lays his hand on Abraham and Sarah and makes some promises to them. Now, the promises are conditional on Abraham's obedience. So we have God's unmerited favor and grace reaching out to Abraham, but, the con- but conditioned on Abraham's response to that. And, and that's attention, you know, uh, and, I, and I've talked about how that's attention that goes right down through the New Testament. And both Paul and James are in their epistles grappling with that tension. Is it our response to God, or is it God's unmerited grace to us? And the answer to that question is yes. It's both. God reaches to Abraham, Abraham responds. And then we see how through Abraham and his descendants, God has promised that he would launch a rescue mission that would bring blessing to the nation's of the earth. We also saw how Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, failed miserably. And in time, the very rescue plan itself needed rescuing. So in the fullness of time, as Galatians says, God sends his own beloved son to be the faithful descendant of Abraham, the one who he could fulfill his promises through. So Jesus came as an Israelite, born under the law, born of a woman, it says, and he assumed 
Israel's true identity. He became the true vine, and he assumed Israel's vocation. He became the light of the world. And through this descendant of Abraham, God's son, through his life, death, and resurrection, the door of God's grace and blessing is opened to the nations and the restoration of of creation. What I've been saying is that the New Testament does not present a new unrelated story from the Old Testament. It's one story, and Jesus comes not to begin something completely new, but to be the consummation, the fulfillment of all that has gone before, and the pivotal lynch point of everything that, that, uh, of, of the story that goes forward. We talked about the fact that we as Jesus' followers have been grafted into that story. That's the language that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11. And so the, the election of Israel, the call on them to be an ethical representation of the God that they served and their mission to bless the nations is now yours and mine. We have been elected and the Bible throughout the New Testament talks about the saints as the elect of God. We are called to be a holy people, to be the reflection of the image of God into the nations. We're called to be a blessing to the people of the world. Now, in conclusion, uh, thinking about that calling, thinking about that task, thinking about our mission, a question formed in my mind, and it was basically, how can we avoid repeating Israel's story and their failure? And that, I guess, leads to another question. What was it that was their failure repeatedly? And as I read and reread Israel's story, what emerges is their propensity for idolatry. It was the repeating pattern. It was the sticking point of, of, of the people's story. It was the ultimate reason for their exile and failure. You know, after God so spectacularly redeemed them from Egyptian bondage, one might imagine that they would um, be glad to break all their ties to and completely abandon their, their idolatry that they were entangled with in, in Egypt. You would imagine after that redemption, they would have turned their back. But clearly, as you read the story, they did not. It's only a relatively short period of time from that dramatic deliverance that they are out in the wilderness. Moses goes up the mountain. They don't know where he is. And they revert very quickly to the default setting of Egyptian idolatry. And they instruct Aaron to make a golden calf, which was a copy of the bull worship that they had been involved with in Egypt. Time goes on and Joshua, at the end of that book, is giving his final address to Israel. Now, many years have gone by. They have spent 40 years in the wilderness. There, have been, there has been the years, the additional years of the conquest of, of the land. And now at the end of Joshua's life, he's talking to the people. And in Joshua 24, verse 14, he says, Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Worship the Lord alone. These people are still holding to the idolatry of Egypt. You read Psalm 106. It's a, a, a recitation of Israel's sad, tragic history and repeated failures. And the thing that crops up again and again in that recitation is their idolatry. 
So Psalm 106 verse 19, it says, And they made a calf in Horeb, and they worshipped the, uh, the metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. A few verses further on in verse 28, They yoked themselves to Baal of Peor and ate the sacrifices offered to the dead. In verse 36, They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons, and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was desecrated by their blood they defiled themselves by what they did by their deeds they prostituted themselves message translation says they lived like whores now if you've read the Old Testament you'll know that that kind of Sexual unfaithfulness language crops up again and again in the prophets, in the book of Hosea, in, in Ezekiel chapter 23, in, in Jeremiah. Jeremiah picks up on that language of idolatry and likens it to the sexual unfaithfulness of a spouse. In Jeremiah 2, the prophet talks about the spousal love between Yahweh and Israel. God loved them as a true husband, but they turned from him to other lovers. So verse 5 reads like this, What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me and have followed idols and become idolaters? The King James is interesting. It says they followed vanity and they became vain. And we'll comment on this a bit later, but that's the nature of worship. It reproduces what it reveres. You worship vanity, you become vain. Verse 11 says, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And then in verse 20, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a whore. This is, this is powerful language, actually. As powerful as it is in English, it doesn't even compare to what it is in the Hebrew language. This is truly X-rated language in the Hebrew and uh, our translators really didn't know how to translate it or were embarrassed to translate it uh, as it literally reads because this is powerful, shocking even language that is designed to shake these people out of their delusional thinking and behavior. Where it says, and I, and I hope I won't offend you, but where it says they bowed down like a whore, it literally reads in the Hebrew, you spread your legs to every passerby. And, and in that culture, this is shocking language. Instead of being faithful to your covenant Lord and husband, you spread your legs to every passerby. How disgusting is that? By the way, Ezekiel 23 is even more powerful. These guys did not mince their words. In Ezekiel, he talks about the gods and the, and the English translates it and says, these gods are no gods. Well, it's not what the Hebrew reads. If you read it literally, it read, these gods are S-H-I-T, gods. That's how it reads in the Hebrew. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are trying to shake these people out of their delusional idolatry. Now, all of this, you know, you can read this as a New Testament believer and, and you, you can look on it and think, you know what, I mean, these were ancient people, they were a primitive bunch, so unlike us postmoderns. Well, you can tell where I'm going to go with this, can't you? <laughs> Interestingly, the Bible does not take that tact. Paul writing to the 
church at Corinth, largely, by the way, made up of Gentiles, and he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. My dear fellow believers, you need to understand that all of our Jewish ancestors who walked through a wilderness long ago were under a glory cloud and passed through the waters of the sea on both sides. They were all baptized into the cloud of glory, into the fellowship of Moses and into the sea. They all ate the same heavenly manna and drank the water from the same spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ himself. Yet God was not pleased with most of them and their dead bodies were scattered around the wilderness. Now, all of these things serve as types and pictures for us, lessons that teach us not to fail in the same way by callously craving worthless things and practicing idolatry as some of them did. So we aren't talking about the New Testament community, the Old Testament community. We can't just simply dismiss this by saying they were a primitive people. He's now talking to people like you and I. Writing to a largely Gentile church, I'm interested that first of all he calls these ancient Israelites our ancestors. He doesn't say that ancient people. He says these are your people. This is your tribe. You have been grafted into this story and those forefathers are your forefathers. These are our people. And he indicates that very strongly that the things that trip them up can be exactly the same things that trip us up and I want to say to you this morning that idol worship is not an ancient phenomenon that does not apply to us postmoderns. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, idolatry is presented as the supreme threat to our faith. Don't make the mistake of thinking that idols have to be some carved image, some totem pole, some brass statue that sits on some mantelpiece in a prominent place in your house. Idols can be metal, but they can be mental. Idols can just as easily be conceived in the mind as they can be carved by the hand. And when Paul speaks about idolatry, he speaks about things that our culture knows well. He associates the dynamics of human greed, of lust, and of covetousness with idol worship. And I won't take the time to look at the passage. They're up on the board if you want to note them down. But Ephesians chapter 5 verse 4 and Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 say something pretty similar to each other. What they're saying is greed, covetousness, and lust at the center stage of our culture constitute idol worship. Now, we may not use ancient language to describe their impact on, them, on, on, on us. We, we very rarely hear people talking about greed as idolatry or lust as idolatry. We don't use the word idol. We're much more liable to use words like obsession, compulsion, codependency, addiction. Friends, books, courses, lectures, and support groups on codependency and addiction are a growth industry in our culture. And we, like the children of Israel, are yoked to idols every bit as much. And we shouldn't be surprised or shocked. Os Guinness comments, the idol-making propensity of the imagination of our heart is a continuing and deadly threat to faith. If we are going to be this community, if we've been grafted into this story, elected ethically called to represent the God that we serve to bless the nations, then the biggest threat to that will be the same threat that undid Israel. It will be that we are caught up in the love of other things, that we are a people given to idolatry. John writes his letter, the first letter, uh, first epistle of John, finishes it off in chapter 5 verse 21, and his concluding words were, beloved, keep yourself from idols. Now I read that and, and want to ask John, John, what happened to yours sincerely? 
What happened to yours faithfully? What happened to kind regards or cheers? Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. It was the issue that he was so concerned about in terms of the ongoing faith of the community that he served as a leader. And it's no different now. It's no different here. When Paul wrote to the first Thessalonians, the Thessalonians church in the first epistle, he says, having turned from idols to the living God, And I would want to say, and the ongoing task of every community, of every person within the community, is to keep turning from them. Not just having turned from them in the past, but keep turning from them as they present themselves before us. So so to clarify, so that we aren't under any illusions, an idol is anything or anyone that lays claim to our heart's confidence, attention, loyalty, affection, and that grows to a point where it demands our trust and our reliance. At that point, it is a full-blown substitute for God. It's an idol. Idolatry is principally the response of personal adoration to something or someone less than Jehovah God. It may be a physical object. It could be a piece of property. It could be a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, or a hero. Anything that takes our attention. Anything that would constitute a compulsion, an obsession, an addiction. You have to call it by what it's actually called biblically. It may be a concept like wealth. Where we pursue this thing with a passion and an affection that is completely out of kilter. It may be a desire for power. It could be about sexual prowess, how I look. Some of the addictions and the obsessions that grip our hearts and that are manifest in the swelling membership of gymnasiums all over our world. You say, Don, are you against gymnasiums? Of course I'm not. Are you against working out and looking good? No, not necessarily. Don't like that you look good. (laughs) You know, it says of Joseph, he was muscular and good-looking. And I often say when I read that, it's not wrong to be muscular and good-looking, it's just not fair. <laughs> Stupidity aside, you know, of course I'm not against those things. But I know people who are obsessed by those things, who can't miss those things, because if they do, they go into a, just a, a spin. You know, th- there's something wrong with that. There's something out of kilter with that. And sometimes we've got to be honest enough to own up and name it for what it is. And hear John's word. Beloved, keep yourself from those things that would grab the attention and the affection of your heart. So you say, well, Don, you know, how do you do that? What does that look like in shoes? God never asks us to live by a negation. He is not a God who simply says No. Whenever God says no to something, it is always unto a yes that offers you something better. I know this is not a popular thing to say in our culture because you can't comment on anybody's sexuality in our culture. But, but I want to say to you, it's, it, it's not old-fashioned, it's not prudish when God actually says, you know what, sexual relations belong within the covenant of marriage. And, and prior to that, the word of God says no. 
Now, God is not simply being a cosmic killjoy. He does not run around the battlements of heaven with a four-by-two with the nails sticking out of it looking for anybody who's having fun so that he can just go, ah, crash, no. What God does say is no because yes, He's the one who created our sexual capacities. He's the one who says within, these, within this sphere, they function. Within that sphere, ultimately, they do not. And when God says no, he doesn't do it just simply to be difficult, to be grouchy. He does it because he wants to say yes at another level. You've heard me say this before. I say it again unapologetically. The best definition of sin I have ever heard is our attempt to take by force what God actually wants to give us by grace. And we demand it in our time and in our place and on our terms. And God simply says it doesn't work there. No. It's like a parent saying to a little child who has a razor, no. Not so that they can simply curtail the child's liberty, but so that they can guard its freedom. So we don't live by a negation. When God says no to something, he says yes to something better. And what we know from the scripture is that we, as, as part of our creative design, have a need and a call to worship. We are religious beings. There has never been a community found by anthropologists as yet that has not been religious in some way, that doesn't channel that desire to worship into something or somebody. We are a religious being. We will worship. We must worship. It is as natural an instinct as hunger or the sex drive. If we don't worship God, we will worship something else. As much as our society likes to imagine it's secular and doesn't worship, it does. And we see its temples and citadels everywhere we look. G.K. Chesterton once quipped, when a man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing. He worships anything. You can't live by a negation. You can't live by a no. You have to say yes to the right object of worship. And it's our creator it's our Redeemer. The passionate pursuit and worship of Yahweh has the power to purge us of that proclivity, that tendency to worship other things. Psalm 81, if you want to read it sometime, is a call to God's people to be a people of worship and praise, to center and worship and praise God alone. And it outlines the means of worship, it outlines the motivations of worship, it outlines the benefits of worship. And in verses 8 and 9, it says this, Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, there shall be no foreign gods among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. Now, this isn't a command. God is not saying, don't worship other gods. There are other places that say that. But this passage is actually a promise. He's saying, if you will learn to worship, if you will um, buy into the means, the motivations, the methods of worship, one of the benefits of, of that is that that worship will purge you of the foreign gods, of the the idolatrous tendencies, because as you give yourself to a yes, the no will be dealt with. He's saying, worship me, and I will ensure 
that there are no foreign gods among you. God is promising that if they'll worship, they'll be kept from the power of idolatry. One will purge the other. Saying yes to Yahweh is saying no to idolatry. If, if what I've been talking about over these last few weeks is the story of the Bible is true, we've been called, we've been elected to be a community that reflects ethically the character of the God who has called us to be a blessing to the nations. And worship plays such a vital role in forming that community. By the way, that's one of the reasons that right up high on our priorities is that we learn to be a people of worship. You know, when you hear someone from the front, perhaps it be me or Chris or somebody else who's leading, and they talk about entering into worship, we aren't just trying to jack you up emotionally. We aren't just trying to get a happy, clappy bunch of people who get a, a buzz for a few moments. We are trying to form a people who worship Yahweh, who are given to reverence the one who has created us the one who's redeemed us. Because the reality is what we worship, we reproduce. What we revere, ultimately, we resemble. Remember I read that passage to you a bit early on. Israel worshipped idols, they became idolatrous. The King James says they worshipped vain things and they became vain. That's the nature of this thing. What is it that you are focusing on? Because what you are focusing on, you will reproduce. It's the nature of our created being. That's why in Psalm 115, and you know the passage, it says their gods are metal and wood, handmade in a basement shop, carved mouths that can't talk, painted eyes that can't see, tin ears that can't hear, molded noses that can't smell, uh, hands that can't grasp, feet that can't walk or run, throats that never uttered a sound, and then the telling phrase, those who make them have become just like them, have become just like the gods they trust. That's a frightening thing. What do you worship? I say people, will, you know, they worship that worship wealth, cold hard cash. And you know in the worship of cold hard cash you become cold and hard. It's the way it works. As we worship God, we become transformed. We become transformed in his image. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You worship worthless things and you actually become worthless. That, that phrase, by the way, of worship um, and becoming worthless is, is drawn out of the ancient world of, of money. M money in that time was made of metals, but they aren't the metals that we, we have today, they, they were metal that would, would wear with use. So a coin that had been in use a long time literally wore thin, and as a result of wearing thin became worthless. When, when you worship worthless things, the weight of your life becomes less, and you become worth less than you were in the beginning. 
We worship a God, and the Bible talks about this God in terms of his glory. We are transformed from one degree of glory into another as we worship this God. Well, the Hebrew word for for glory is kabod, and it's a word that has to do with weight and substance. And as we worship God, it's as if God allows the wearing down of our lives to be rebuilt, and we become worth more. We become more weighty, there's more substance. Worship plays a vital role in the formation of a community that will reflect the character of God. It's not just an activity that we do to fill in time. And I want to really encourage you this morning to be part of a worshiping community. Not just coming and sitting, not allowing a team to do their, the worship vicariously for you as you just watch on and they do it. So many people come to church and their part of the, of the worship is probably not much more than singing a few songs. And as, as much as, and as powerful as it is to sing, God's asking for more than your song. He's asking for your life through that song. All of the things we do, whether it's singing, whether it's lifting our hands, whether it's clapping our hands, those are simply um, tools, they're vehicles that carry our hearts into the presence of God. Alone they mean nothing. That's why Jesus was to say to the Pharisees, you worship me with your lips, there's there's words there, but they mean nothing because they don't carry your heart. Again, you've probably heard us talk, if you've been around Gateway very long, about the fact that Lamentation says, lift your heart with your hands. There is something that, that when your heart is involved, your body reflects it. You know, people say, well, I worship. Well, really? You would never know. And if you convey love to your family in that same manner, I suspect they would never know either. So, well, God knows my heart. Yes, he does. And he knows how proud, arrogant, stubborn, and rebellious we can all be. And he says, I want your life. Not just the inner portion. You know, I was saying last Sunday night, we aren't divided up into some portion so that you can worship in your heart, but not outwardly. We are physio, psychological, spiritual unities. And, and who you are actually is deeply, profoundly tied up with your body. And to simply say, I'm worshipping on the inside, doesn't cut the mustard. I'm sorry, it doesn't. And I, I don't mean to, well, yeah, I do mean to, let's be honest. <laughs> Get in your face, pastorally this morning, and challenge you. And say, you know, you can have been around for a long time. And one thing I know about being around for a long time is things tend to just devolve. And somehow you don't find yourself involved worshipping as much as perhaps you did in the early days. But then you're maturing and God knows your heart. Maybe something else is happening. Maybe you're not maturing and God knows your heart. Maybe just something unraveling in terms of our love response. And this is a call, really, at the end of this series. This is a call for us to be committed to being a community that truly reflect God. And 
Paul says one of the ways you reflect him is look at him with an open face, beholding him and worshipping, and there is something about that that is profoundly, deeply transformative, and it changes us. And I want to call you to that change. So I'm going to ask the team to come. And uh, we're going to do show and tell this morning. (laughs) We're going to worship. And uh, not just as a close to the service, but as part of the transforming process where we commit ourselves to be that community that will reflect the Lord and be a blessing to the nation. So would you stand with me? Father, we thank you for your incredible kindness and grace. We thank you for the unmerited favor that has reached out to call us. And by your grace, working in and through our lives, we respond and we want to be the people that you've called us to be. Father, would you soften and tender our hearts where in any way and for any reason they've become somewhat calloused and hardened. And Father, as a result of the wear of circumstances and perhaps challenges and difficulties, something has just worn off our lives and we've become worth less than we were before something of the weight of your purposes and passion in our lives has just been worn by the difficulty of circumstances. Father, this morning, as we spend just a few moments in your time, we commit ourselves to being a people that worship you, that reflect you, that live for you. We want to be a people that are faithful to the covenant love that you've showed us and that are not prostituting ourselves on lesser things. Father, where there are obsessions and compulsions and addictions, where there are idols, we ask that you would move among us and break the power of them. We offer you our lives, we lift up our hearts with our hands, and we say, cleanse our hearts, Lord. Set us free. Make us the people that you would want us to be because we ask that in Jesus' name and for his sake. You know, I was reading uh, Lynn Sweet a while back and he just made this little comment and it just stuck with me. It was one of those just, wow, I hadn't thought of that. But he talked about worship and he, was, and he simply said, worship is the Spirit's playground. Worship is the Spirit's playground. It says we worship that the Holy Spirit moves, dances among us, touches us, sets us free, sets things in order. Worship is the Spirit's playground. So open the gates of your playground this morning. Welcome the Holy Spirit as we worship, would you? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.